You can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're continuing on in our series. Pastor Dave gave me the privilege of preaching this chapter, so I'll be up here the next three weeks. When I think of heroes of the faith, I don't know about you, but my mind often goes to David Livingston. Any of you are probably familiar with David Livingston? He was a Scottish missionary to Africa in the mid-1800s. For nearly 30 years, he explored the continent of Africa, charted roads through vast jungles and harsh terrains. He preached the gospel to unreached tribes and, and helped the sick as a doctor and fought to end slave trade within the continent. Livingston faced disease, savage tribes, violent weather, and even survived a lion attack. He did all of this to reach the people of Africa with the gospel of Jesus Christ. David Livingston eventually died a slow and painful death by dysentery. Every report confirms that he was found dead in his tent on his knees in prayer. As he died slowly from bleeding to death, he got down on his knees and prayed. What a testimony. What could possibly motivate a man to do such extraordinary and dangerous things, even to give up his own life? I mean, David Livingston sacrificed everything for the sake of the gospel. The answer is found in our passage this morning. Romans 12 starts off the great so what of this letter. How should we respond to the wonderful and powerful truth of the gospel? How does it affect our daily lives? In Romans 12, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul answers these questions. We'll see that because God has given us everything in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we owe him our whole lives. Because the gospel has radically changed our entire existence, the logical and necessary response is to live a life that is completely committed to our Lord and Savior. Living the gospel means that we're so grateful for this amazing gift of salvation that we surrender our lives in service to him. So what should be our response to this good news? What should it look like? Our passage this morning gives two commands that make up our necessary response to the gospel. Let's read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be transformed to this world, but be tr transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The first command we see in verse 1 is the gospel commands us to be sacrifices to God. Paul starts with, I appeal to you, therefore. A better translation would be, therefore, I urge you. That therefore is calling us to remember everything that Paul has explained in chapters 1 through 11. Concerning this wonderful truth of the gospel. Romans is the longest and most extensive discussion of the gospel. In the beginning of the letter, if you remember, Paul taught us that the gospel is the only means of salvation. Romans 1.16 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In chapters 1 through 3, we learn that before Christ, we were dead in sin. We worshipped the creation rather than the creator. We traded the truth for our own lies. We also learned that we had debased minds. And we were without excuse or defense before God. We were hopeless, helpless. Ultimately, each of us was destined for God's eternal wrath. Then Paul says in chapters 2 and 3 that there's no value in good deeds for salvation. Good works do not and cannot make us righteous. The law can't save you. Then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul explains that salvation only comes through faith in Jesus. When you receive Christ by faith, we become the children of God. All of our sins are forgiven, and we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. And now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, access to God, hope in God, and joy with God. Chapters 6 and 7 talk about our life now in Christ. We are now dead to sin and to the law. We are alive in Christ Jesus. We are now slaves to God. We have eternal life in Christ. Then in Romans chapter 8, we have the assurance of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us in that chapter that we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are joint heirs with Christ. We're eternally secure, and we have a future glory that is far beyond the suffering and pain of this life. Then the end of chapter 8, he reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then in chapter 8 and through chapter 9, Paul teaches us that our salvation was and is completely by God's sovereign plan. We had no part in it. In fact, if we played a role in our salvation, it would have never happened. God saved us. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul explains that this work of redemption was all a part of God's mysterious plan before time even began. And it is ultimately working out for his glory. Which brings us back to the end of chapter 11, which we read last week. Chapter 11, verse 33 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So with this therefore established, we can understand Paul's appeal in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The ESV says, I appeal. The KJV says, I beseech. Or another version says, I urge. Now these different words carry different ideas in our minds, but in reality, Paul is exhorting all believers. He's introducing this command with an appeal. And notice the familiarity he writes with. He addresses them as brothers or brothers and sisters. Paul has never been to this church. 
but he appeals to the relationship with, that we have in Christ to be persuasive. He wants his audience to listen and obey God's word. If you are a child of God, then he wants you to obey these words. And then he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is the force or the power of the command that he's about to give. This command is empowered by the rich and abundant mercies of God. This includes God's gift of love, grace, forgiveness, righteousness, justification, adoption, freedom from sin, peace, eternal life, and hope. God has given us all these things in his mercies. He has given them to us in Christ and through his spirit. And so once again, Paul is reminding us of the gospel message that he has unpacked for the last 11 chapters of this letter. He's being extremely clear. This is the expectation. This is the necessary response to the good news that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, came down from heaven and died on a cross for your sins. This is the response. This is the expectation. It's almost like Paul is up to bat at home plate. And the mercies of God are this massive baseball bat. And we are the ball sitting on a tee. Paul is using the mercies of God to exhort us. He's hitting an out-of-the-park, walk-off, grand slam with the most powerful bat one could ever imagine. The mercies of God commission us to do something. Paul is saying, in light of all this, do this. This command is empowered by the grace of God. And so with all this established, with all this in mind, Paul brings the hammer down with this first command. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The command is to present, to present your bodies to God. Now that word present would have drawn a, a Jew's mind in the first century to the act of presenting a sacrifice on the altar. If you remember, the old covenant required regular sacrifices of animals and, and goods at the temple. And so different days required different sacrifices. Different sins required different sacrifices. And it's all described chapter after chapter in the Old Testament. And this was a bloody and gruesome process that happened day after day. And it could only provide a temporary covering for sin. This was a constant reminder to Israel that God is holy and man is not. But here in Romans chapter 12... We are commanded to present our bodies, our whole beings, as a sacrifice to God. We're not giving an animal to God. We're not giving our grain. We are giving our lives. God doesn't just want the gift. He wants the giver. According to Hebrews chapter 10, Christ has put an end to the old covenant sacrifices by his perfect, eternal, and infinite sacrifice on the cross. But it says in verses 10 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 10, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. So Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross, has ended all sacrifices. But now we are being called to respond to that with the sacrifice of ourself, with true worship. What are we to present for sacrifice? Our bodies. That's every part of us. Our physical body, our mind, our heart, our desires, our goals, everything we do, say, think, smell, taste, hear, and pursue all belongs to God. Everything belongs to God and should be presented to him as a sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20 say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Temples are meant for sacrifice. You are meant to be a living sacrifice. The Lord Jesus shed his blood on a cross to purchase your body. So present it to him as a sacrifice because it already belongs to him. Paul goes on to describe what our sacrifice should look like. He says it is a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice. In the Greek text, all three of these adjectives, living, holy, and acceptable, have the same weight. So a better translation would be, present your bodies as a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable. These adjectives all refer to the sacrifice of, of our bodies, and help us understand this idea, what we are giving to God. The first adjective is living. We actively give our lives to God every day. The old sacrificial system could offer an animal only once because it would be put to death, right? The priest would receive that animal. He would take it to the altar. He would sacrifice it. He would take its blood and spread it on the, on the altar and on the horns, and the body would be burned. You never got that animal back. It's a one-time sacrifice. But we are called to be living sacrifices, primarily because we have been given new life in Jesus. He was the ultimate and final sacrifice for us. Now the sacrifice that remains is our total commitment to him. Paul is commanding us to present our whole lives as a daily act of service to God. Our sacrifices are to be holy. That means set apart or dedicated to God. Like a spotless lamb that was dedicated from its youth for sacrifice, so should our lives be. Remember that you exist on this earth for God. He created you for himself. 
The end of chapter 11 said, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. That includes you. You exist for God's glory. And if you're here today and you have faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, then you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And you now belong to him as his child. This sacrifice of our lives is holy because Christ has made us holy before God. Which leads naturally into our third adjective. Our sacrifice is acceptable or well-pleasing. When we commit our lives to God, even though we fail and still struggle with sin and war against our flesh, God is pleased with our service. The holy God of heaven, who created everything by the word of his mouth, desires your service. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, God accepts your worship. Therefore, your service is well-pleasing to God. He desires it, so give it. Then Paul adds to this command, which is your spiritual worship. That phrase, spiritual worship, is a little hard to define with accuracy. Commentators disagree about it. Most commentators agree that the better translation might be reasonable service or logical worship. In light of Paul's point that we have been blessed beyond all measure by the mercies of God, Committing ourselves totally to God is the rational, the logical, the reasonable response. The more we understand the truth of the gospel, the more we will commit ourselves to God. It is the logical response. This is the reasonable thing to do. The question is not, how much should I give? Paul already answered that, everything. Everything you have belongs to God. So do the reasonable thing and surrender it to him. Our motivation is love and thankfulness for the sacrifice of Christ. We don't do this out of a sense of duty or just because we're told to. We do this because Christ died for our sins on the cross. He purchased us by his blood. I exist on this earth to glorify him. As Christians, we don't just exist here to make money, pay taxes, and retire at 65. We're commanded to consider everything as an opportunity to worship God and proclaim his glory. The gospel demands that we give everything to God. Many people struggle with this concept because they don't fully comprehend the gospel. If you don't fully trust what Christ has done for you, then you won't obey this command. If you don't fully trust that purchasing you by his blood and giving you eternal life with himself is the greatest gift that you could ever receive, then you won't give yourself to him. Right? We just want to be successful. We want to retire young. We want to travel the world. But those things are for self. The passage doesn't say, present your bodies as a sacrifice to yourself or to your retirement or to your weekend. God's word is calling us to total surrender of our desires and plans and goals to God. 
Committing our bodies to God as a sacrifice is no easy task. This isn't a walk in the park. This is a lifelong marathon. It takes a steady mind that is fixed on the glory of God. The end of this marathon is coming. It is the presence of God. But we're still in the marathon. We're still taking that next step. And we often forget that our reward is in heaven. It's not here. We get short-sighted and we start wanting recognition and blessing now. But the Bible is telling us to serve now because you have an eternity to spend with your Savior and God who will give you all things that will never pass away. This world and all its goods will pass away. They already are. You can see it before you. So don't live for today and neglect eternity. That would be the worst trade ever imaginable. Don't trade eternity for today. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you sacrifice your time to, what you sacrifice your money to, is what you are living for. What you sacrifice to is what you are worshiping. So sacrifice yourself to the one who purchased you on the cross. We can never repay God because of his mercies. They are infinite and eternal. But God never intended to be reimbursed. Romans 12.1 is calling us to respond appropriately to the amazing gift of the gospel. We need to present ourselves as sacrifices to our Lord and Savior. God deserves all of our praise, all of our time, and all of our lives. God wants your time. It doesn't matter if you're at work, in the car, or sitting on the couch at home. God desires your time. He wants your sacrificial giving. If we are to commit our whole entire beings to God, that includes the money you make. If Christ has rescued us from eternal wrath and given us eternal life with the Father, then surely the money you make belongs to God. God desires your affection. He wants you to pursue Him above all else. That means our time, money, and desires should be committed to God. So when we have to choose between a brand new boat or giving more to our church, the answer is present yourself as a sacrifice to God. When we have to choose between getting our kids to every sporting event or going to church, the answer is present yourself as a sacrifice to God. When we choose between more, spending more time on our phones or more time in the Word, the answer is present yourself as a sacrifice to God. When we, struggle, when we struggle to set aside time to pray, the answer is present yourself as a sacrifice to God. When we are deciding what to do next in life, the answer still is present yourself as a sacrifice to God. The logical response to the gospel is to make a habit of being in the word. 
to lead your families in the truth, to love your wives and to respect and honor your husbands, to obey your parents, to forgive those that hurt you, to serve in your church, proclaim the gospel, help those in need, pray for the sick and hurting, to deny yourself and pursue the kingdom of God. And when we fail at any of this, we turn to the Lord, repenting of our selfishness and trust his grace and keep moving forward. This is how we live the gospel. Present yourself as a sacrifice to God. Not only are we commanded to be sacrifices to God in verse 1, but in verse 2 we find the second command of our necessary response to the gospel. The gospel commands us to be transformed by God. Verse 2 reads, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The gospel commands us to be transformed by God. Verse 2 starts with a prohibition. Do not be conformed to this world. This is a passive command, so that means that the action is being done to us. He's telling us to resist conformity. To conform is to comply or adapt to a standard. Paul is, saving, Paul is saying, don't give in to the pressures of this world. Don't embrace the evil system of this age. Our world is evil. That is no surprise to any of us. And when we think of the evil and the wickedness and the brokenness of this world, our minds often go to the obvious things. Like our society's obsession with abortion or adultery or homosexuality, or pornography, or drunkenness. And certainly these things are constant pressures from the world. And they are wicked, and they are evil, and they are dominating our culture. But maybe even more dangerous are the subtle pressures of this world. Things that we can adopt without anyone ever knowing. Like the type of movies we watch, what we allow ourselves to be entertained with, the jokes we tell with our coworkers the music that we listen to, or the opinions that we hold so tightly. The world is influencing our church habits. More churches are trying to win people with the latest fads and trends instead of the gospel. Church members are adopting the mentality of, I want what I want because that's the way I want it, or that's the way we've always done it. But does that sound like the mind of Christ? who left the glories of heaven to offer himself on a sacrifice, on a cross for you? Or the idea that church is optional. This is becoming more prevalent than ever before. Parents wonder why little Johnny grew up and doesn't care about God, but maybe because Johnny was always at baseball practice and not at church. Maybe because you spent more time teaching Johnny how to throw a ball and not how to handle the word. We communicate our values to our children by the things that we do, not just by the things we say. According to verse 1, our lives are to be sacrifices to God. And church is one of the best places to fulfill that command. The slightest adoption of the world's standards can have drastic effects 
on your life and spiritual growth. The world is constantly pressuring you to conform to its evil and wicked image. The God of this world, Satan, is using your fleshly desires with the pressures of this world to conform us to sin. How do you like that for an image? The devil may be using your music, your entertainment, your hobby, your humor, or your preferences to conform you to his own wicked image. That's why Paul is telling us to resist conformity. On the contrary, the positive side, but be transformed. This is another passive command, so it's something that is being done to us. So we must submit to it. We must submit to this transformation. It could read, let yourself be transformed. That word transform means to be completely changed, both outwardly and inwardly. It's where we get our word metamorphosis. To be completely changed, both on the outside and on the inside. It's describing the process of sanctification. Or the process by which the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to make us less like the world and more like Christ. How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As we saw earlier, we are the temples of the Spirit of God. Through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you have been given a new mind that replaced your old debased mind that we learned about in Romans chapter 1. The all sinful mankind has. We have debased minds. But the Spirit replaces that mind with a new mind. And the law of God is written on our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit indwells us, he is transforming us. As we read scripture or hear sermons or sing hymns, the Holy Spirit is actively changing our thinking so that we conform to the image of Christ and not this world. And sometimes this can be a noticeable event, right? Sometimes the word of God strikes us right in between the eyes. So, yep, I got to change that. But usually this takes place over years of input. For any of you that have walked with Christ for a number of years, you can look back and see how God has changed you. You no longer desire the things that you used to. You no longer do the things that you used to. Because the Spirit of God changed your heart so that it more aligned with God and less like the world. Be transformed by God. We are commanded to not be conformed to this world, but to surrender ourselves to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Submit to the Spirit of God's work in your life. But why should our minds be renewed? Paul answers this question in the last part of verse 2. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As our minds are renewed by the Holy Spirit, our desires are changed. Our thinking begins to align with God's word. And as a result of this ongoing process, the ability is to discern and know the will of God. 
as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change us into the image of the Son of God, we will know God's will, and we will do it. So we have to ask the question, well, what is God's will? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Romans 12, 2 says, His will is what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is to change you into the image of His perfect and holy Son. Before Christ, we were all slaves to our sinful passions and desires. But in Christ, we have been freed to love and obey God. So as we begin to understand God's will for our lives, as revealed in his word, we'll do what he wants. As you begin to approve what God approves, you will be able to test your motives and make decisions that please God. This is possible because you are being transformed by God's spirit. So Paul is commanding us, don't be conformed, be transformed. Submit yourself to the Spirit's work in your life. A paraphrase of this verse would be, don't be conformed, be transformed, so that you can be informed. So that you can know and do the will of God. So that you can please the one that called you by his grace and rescued you from eternal condemnation and has given you eternal life. This is a long process. But we can be proactive with the Holy Spirit. First, we must resist conformity to this world. You need to consider the ways that sin has blinded your heart. And you need to repent. Second, you need to trust the timing of God. God has ordained the timing of your sanctification, and it is good, acceptable, and perfect. God planned it to be a lifelong process so that you rely on his timing and grace. So we need to resist conformity. We need to trust the timing of God. Third, we need to rely on the grace of God. God will sanctify you as his child. He won't leave you as you are. This is his will for you. We serve a faithful and loving God who has a plan for you that is good, acceptable, and perfect. Then number four, meditate on the glory of God. We are sanctified as we behold God's glory in his word. So fuel this renewing of your mind by saturating yourself with the word. Read, sing, listen to, pray the word of God. Fuel this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The idea of renewing our minds reminds me of when I was growing up and becoming an adult. As a kid, I loved when we went to Walmart playing on those little rides. You put the quarters in, those little horses that rock back and forth. And I remember being in line to check out and begging my mom for a couple quarters so I could slide him in, jump on that nasty plastic horse and start rocking back and forth. I love that thing. It was so cool. In the past 10 years, I haven't looked at one of those rides and felt the same desire. I looked at it and go, man, I want to go ride that. That thing is disgusting. That's gross. I ain't touching that. Why? I've grown up. I didn't wake up one morning and decide to be different. It just happened. 
that childish ride doesn't appease me anymore. And this is similar to what the Holy Spirit does in renewing our minds. The Holy Spirit is gradually changing our desires so that we no longer have the desire and appetite for sin, for the things we did as an unbeliever or an immature Christian, and so that we have more of a desire to serve and love God. As the Holy Spirit transforms us, we begin to desire what matters, pleasing God with our lives. So how can we cultivate this renewal of our minds? What can we do to grow? The answer is the same as the first command. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice to God. Resist conformity to the world. Instead, submit to the Spirit's work in your life. Fuel this growth, this process with the Word of God. Get active in your church. Pray for your pastors and deacons. Serve in Awana. Visit the sick and lonely. Guard your home. Teach the word. Be willing to shut off the television and read the Bible together. Pray for your spouse, your children, and your grandchildren. When things get rough at work or money is tight, turn to the Lord in prayer. And continue to serve with confidence that God is using this for your good and his glory. And that he has a will for you that is good and acceptable and perfect. And when you fall into sin, when you mess up again, repent to the Lord. And trust that his atoning work on the cross has covered your sin. As we do these things, God will gradually and faithfully renew our minds. So the appropriate, the logical, the reasonable response to the truth of the gospel is presenting your body, your whole being, as a sacrifice to God and being transformed by God through the renewal of your mind. Paul has summarized the Christian life in two verses. I hope that as you have heard the gospel message and you have seen the abundant grace of God, that your response will be that of thankfulness and commitment to God. And as we continue to go through Romans chapter 12, we will see more applications of these marching orders. These are the orders. Present yourself to God as a sacrifice. Submit to the Spirit's work in your life. The rest of the chapter shows us what that looks like. As mentioned at the beginning, the missionary David Livingston was a man that understood this passage. His faith in the gospel caused him to surrender everything to God. In one of his journals towards the end of his life, he wrote the following. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with such a word, such a view, such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we not ought talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. David Livingston understood gospel living. He understood the rational response to the gospel. He was a man that lived what this passage commands. 
our response to the gospel is to give God what he already owns. Everything belongs to God that includes you. So in conclusion this morning, here's a summary of Romans chapter 12 that will guide us as we continue to work through this chapter in the weeks to come. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is the message. Because you have been given all things in Christ, give yourself completely to God. Do not be shaped by this evil world, but let the Holy Spirit change you into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you have saved us through the cross of Christ. That although we deserve nothing but condemnation and wrath, you have rescued us. That the Holy Son of God stepped down from his throne in heaven to die on a vertical altar for us. Jesus gave us everything and he sacrificed everything for us. Help us, Lord, to respond rationally, reasonably. Help us to obey your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.